Will you open your Bible to the book of Mark again? Let's stay in the book of Mark this morning. I promise that tonight we'll go somewhere else. But for this morning, I want to show you something from the book of Mark. Let's start reading in verse 22 of chapter 8. So flip over to chapter 8. Since we've only taken a peek at Mark in chapter 5 with the healing of that tormented man and his being sent as the first apostle to the Gentiles that we saw last night, I think it's enough to say that so far in this story that Mark is telling Jesus has faced so many different things. You know about the storm. You know about the demon-possessed man. He's fed two massive crowds with this miraculous feeding miracles, first 5,000 of them mostly Jewish, and then right before this section, again in the north in a more predominantly Gentile area, he fed 4,000 people this time. He's already healed leprosy. He's caused a lame man to walk. He has healed various diseases, and he has raised the dead. By Mark chapter 8, in the way the gospel writers, other gospel writers tell this story, Jesus has healed many blind people, but Mark intentionally waits to tell his first story of Jesus healing a blind person. In the Gospels, Jesus healed lots of blind people. But remember, Mark is telling his version of the story. It's not one that's less true. It's one that's just arranged according to his purposes. He's trying to show us things that are beyond just a a plain retelling. It's still the very truth of what happened. But each writer selects it from their own perspective, their own point of view, trying to tell a story to convince you of who Jesus is. And it's very important for you to know that this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is confronted by physical blindness. Okay? Mark chapter 8. Let's start reading in verse 22. The healing of a blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. 
This is the very word of the living God. And it is my prayer, O oh God, would you open their eyes and grant them understanding and illumination because of Jesus. Amen. How did you come to understand the most important things that you understand? Observation, mostly. You learned how to eat because your parents shoved some little baby food, crumbly things in front of you, and you learned to grasp them with thumb and finger. And your mother was so proud of you. And now she expects straight A's. Come on. <laughs> you learned to walk because your dad held your little hands and he went with you like this. And eventually you toddled along and everyone cheered. And now they expect you to keep your room perfectly clean. Come on. What happened to those small victories? Everything you've learned from infanthood to adolescence has been mostly by observation or by someone filling in your understanding. You've learned things that someday you will forget, but you've also learned things that are so important to you that you couldn't forget. You know how to brush your teeth and you don't have to have the toothpaste out and read the back anymore and say, how do you do this again? Oh, squeeze from bottom of tube. That's helpful, thank you. There are things that you know now that will be eradicated from your mind. During the little quiz show time, when Josh asked that question about the workhorse of the cell, what's it called? Powerhouse of the cell. I remembered that I went to high school once. I wasn't a science major in college. I avoided science classes the way that people avoided people with leprosy in the Bible. So I, I remember, though, my high school science classes, and I felt really smart. I sat right over there, and, and he said, powerhouse of the cell, and I yelled, nucleus! <laughs> so there's things that you learn that go somewhere far, far away, never to return. But learning and growing and understanding is something that we all do. It's an ordinary part of life, part of maturity, part of being a person. We've all learned so much over the course of our lives. Some of those lessons are fundamental. Some of them have been very difficult. When it comes to seeing or understanding spiritual things, you need to understand that the way those things are understood is like the way you've learned everything else and unlike the way you've learned everything else. Let me explain. When you were taught about Jesus being the Son of God, probably as a little kid, maybe through a storybook Bible or something like that, you learned things, facts that were true 
about what the Bible said about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. You learned things about God and his nature and character, and they were facts that you learned. There are lots and lots of things that you can learn with your mind that are spiritual things, things about God, things about Jesus, things about how God ordered this world and how it works. You can learn those things, yet knowing lots and lots of stuff does not make you have true spiritual understanding. In other words, just because you know stuff about Jesus doesn't mean that you know Jesus. This is how learning spiritual things is like learning anything. How it's unlike learning anything is when you understand or see not just facts about who Jesus is, but when he becomes important to you. When you see him and not just in a way that says Jesus did this and Jesus is this and I have a pile of facts about Jesus that I know, a bunch of memory verses I learned in Awana. Beyond that, I'm talking about a kind of seeing and understanding and perceiving that is deeper, more important to you, that affects the way not only that you think, but the way that you feel. So that you not only know something, but you have conviction about it. Firm belief. Unshakable confidence. And it's not just mental understanding when we're talking about how you learn spiritual things and how it's unlike learning to ride a bike or drive a car or those things that can be learned by most anyone. When it comes to understanding, seeing, perceiving spiritual things, there is another level required that involves the work of God himself in opening your eyes and awakening your heart so that you would not just be able to say, yes, I believe that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave, but that would be a message that you own with all of your heart and that you love. You would see in this deeper kind of understanding that goes beyond mere knowledge a sort of depth of love, of affection. You would not only think of facts about Jesus, you would have a love for the person of Jesus. You would know him, your heart would delight in him, and it would impact you beyond mere knowledge into the very way that you live and love. You would grow in your understanding, your seeing, your perceiving. And you would see the not only divinity of Jesus as true, but Jesus as God as something thrilling and excellent and wonderful and attractive 
and beautiful. Now maybe I created a dilemma for some of you. Because it starts with just plain understanding. Something anyone can achieve. Anyone can memorize facts, even complicated facts about something like the Trinity. But no one can understand the glory and beauty of God in Jesus unless God does something to your understanding. That's the lesson that is contained in Mark chapter 8. This is a unique story in Mark. Not only because it's the first healing of a blind person in this gospel narrative, but because it is the only healing in the entirety of Jesus' ministry that has two different steps to it. When Jesus told Lazarus to come out of his tomb, he didn't have to get a wheelchair and whoop it in there and kind of plop him on the thing and pull him out and get the defibs and go shum, dum, poof, clear. Sorry, you're supposed to say clear first. That was dangerous. Clear. <laughs> when Jesus fixed the man's withered hand, he didn't touch it. It came back and he said, all right, I know this great physical therapist in Pasadena. You've got to see him. Work hard. That thing will work like a charm in no time. Jesus healed that withered hand and it was perfect. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter in, in Mark chapter 4 or 5 or 6, one of those three chapters, he, he didn't have to get her in the ICU and slowly nurse her back to health. He just said, Talitha, rise. Wake up, little girl. And she was perfectly restored. This story is odd. It's different. It's unlike any miracle we see in the rest of Jesus' ministry. And that's because this story is a metaphor or a parable. There is something happening in this story, something being demonstrated in this story. It's not a fictional story. It's a real story. But Jesus is doing something beyond healing the blind man here. He's teaching his disciples and he's judging the Pharisees and he's showing you and I something about spiritual understanding, about spiritual perception. And I want to show you that in these verses. And it's going to require us to look around these verses a little bit. But I hope that this will be helpful to you in answering questions that are perplexing for Christians. Questions that are difficult and increasingly difficult, I think, among young people who don't understand the nature of spiritual perception. I'll give you the dilemma itself. Why... Does one person, one sibling in your family, for example, believe the gospel? Why is one a Christian and the other one is not? If you have unbelieving cousins or, or relatives or friends, why is it that you are converted? You are a genuine Christian. Why is it that you love Jesus, but someone else with similar circumstances to you does not love Jesus? Is it because you're smarter? Is it because you're more obedient? 
Is it because you were such a holy sinner and they were more of a wretched sinner that when you got saved, it, it worked and, and when they heard the gospel, it just didn't click because they weren't paying attention? You see, we would never think that for a second because salvation is completely an act of God and that act of God in saving us enlivens us, awakens us, opens our eyes, gives us a depth of perception and spiritual understanding to divine things, to greater realities that we would not have seen and we would not have had if it were not for the saving work of God in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in illuminating or enlightening or opening our eyes to perceive spiritual things and to see the beauty and glory and desirability of Jesus. You are not a Christian because you're smarter, because you're better, because you're more obedient, or anything like that. You're a Christian simply because God had mercy on you and opened your spiritual eyes. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Let's look at this story under three headings. As I try to explain to you what's happening here, we'll look at three simple headings. The first one is this, sin is blinding. Sin is blinding. Look at this poor, pathetic man. Jesus is coming to a place he's been many times before. They came to Bethsaida. This is right after the disciples had pulled a great moment of forgetfulness. Verse 14 of chapter 8. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. I love the disciples. They are such a group of clowns sometimes. And I think I would have forgotten bread too if Jesus had just supernaturally produced enough bread for 5,000 people one day and not too long later enough bread for 4,000 people. I don't think I'd ever worry about getting bread again. We have an automatic bread machine in Jesus. And so forgetful or not, you know, no big deal. Jesus had done these miracles and many others in the region called Bethsaida. And Jesus had then, after those people had turned on him, pronounced a curse in Matthew 11. Woe on you, Chorazin. Woe on you, Bethsaida. Uh, if the miracles done in you would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, two pagan cities. He compares uh, the response of these uh, Israelite cities and their rejection of Jesus to these pagan cities and how those cities would have repented, but this city didn't. So at that point in the story, Jesus said, I will do no more miracles in this place. So Jesus is walking back to a place he's already been, done a ton of miracles, but he has promised that he will not do another miracle in this town. As an act of judgment, divine judgment on unbelieving people, he will no longer give them any more signs that he is the Messiah, that he is a God of very God. That's the place that they're walking up to. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. These are kind people, good Samaritans. The social services in Rome were 
close to non-existent. In other words, there wasn't government help or transport vans or programs for people who were disabled. A blind person would come out of whatever tiny spot that they lived, whatever house they could afford, whatever kind of shelter that they slept in, and they would stand in front of their house in the morning in the ancient world. And some kind-hearted person, perhaps a neighbor, perhaps some friends, would grab them by the hand, placing their hand on their arm, and walk them to the center of the town to the town court, to where people would engage in commerce, where people would shop, where people would have conversations. And that person would sit there on a mat and hold out their hand and ask for charity, ask for alms. And kind-hearted people would put a few coins in their hands or perhaps a little bit of bread or, or something to help this poor person. And that person would be stuck there for the remainder of the day until someone in an act of kindness would lift them up and hang on to their hand and lead them back to their home and then they could go about their way. This man apparently at one time in his life was able to see because he was able to describe after that partial healing that these were people that looked like trees. It would be hard to say that if you hadn't seen trees before. You see, there was no fancy hospitals in Jesus' day. And a man who got an infection in his eyes or an injury of the eyes, there was no hope for surgery or antibiotics or something that could somehow help him see. So this is a man who probably was once able-bodied, who was was able to uh, use his eyes and at some point in his life had suffered an accident or an illness and was now completely blind, not able to see anything but darkness. The object of the kindness of strangers is where he finds himself every day, but on this day, the people who had seen Jesus do great miraculous works in Bethsaida told the man to come with them, and they, on his behalf, begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus then takes the man's hand, as had been done by so many kind people before, and leads him by the hand outside of the village. He does this for two reasons. One, because of the curse that he pronounced on that village. He will not do a miracle there. Two, because at this point in the story, Jesus is up in Gentile territory. He's making his way back to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and he will die. He is working the plan of God and nothing will railroad that plan. Nothing will subvert that plan. He will not let a village of people uh, make him king or protect him. He is very carefully and selectively doing what he does often, uh, begging people to be silent even when they are healed. And so this is the reason he leads him outside of the village. And then Jesus spits on the man's eyes and puts his hands on him, and Jesus asks him a question. This also is unusual, not just because of the two-step healing, but because Jesus spit in his eyes. Is that weird to you? I would be super offended if you spit in my eyes. 
I wouldn't think it was a fun camp game. I would put you in a horrifying headlock. You don't spit on someone's eyes. Not in this culture, not even at the debased culture that is camp. Why does Jesus do that? An equally curious question. Why does Jesus ask him a question? Why does omniscient Jesus, Jesus who knows everything, ask him, so can you see? I mean, Jesus isn't like an okay mechanic who's trying to fix an old truck and says, crank it over, see if it works. That's not how this is. Jesus is intentionally doing this healing in a very particular and peculiar way. He wants to make sure that his disciples see that this isn't some kind of trick. This is Jesus himself and only Jesus with the very person that he is, his, in his humanity, with the power of his divinity, taking the saliva from his mouth, putting it on this man's eyes, and then placing his hands on the man. This is a very personal kind of healing. Very personal. So that it would be crystal clear that Jesus is doing this himself and what he's doing, he's doing intentionally. The disciples are watching and they've never seen him heal like this before. This is strange. He has their full attention. He asks a question that Jesus knows the answer to. Can you see anything? And the man looks up and says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible, trees walking around. He has some kind of blurry vision. If you were to swim in the lake today and open your eyes, it's how you would be able to see other people. And there's a chance that you would never see again if you chose to do that. But we all know what it's like to wake up and have blurry vision. We all know what it's like to have smudgy glasses if you're, if you're a handsome and intellectual glasses-wearing person like me. And there's times when my glasses are so smudgy I can barely notice it, and my dear wife Marilee has to pat me on the head and say, how can you even see through those things? Let me wash them for you. And I just lay on my belly like a puppy, and she washes my glasses and puts them back on. We all know what it's like to have hindered vision, and this man's vision is is not quite clear. He sees people like trees walking around, blurry, moving, tall objects. And then Jesus does stage two. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. That's the story. What I'm trying to show you here, first off, is that sin is blinding. You see, blindness for this man is physical, actual blindness. His eyes didn't work. But blindness is also a metaphor. Not just in the New Testament, it is, and I'll show you that, But in this very story, Jesus is intentionally encountering a blind people to show his disciples that they too are blind. Because sin is blinding. 
Look back with me at Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus has already fed 5,000, now he's feeding 4,000. The disciples ask a question that some commentators have found to be quite stupid. In verse 4, the disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Well, duh, disciples, remember the, the ABM, the automated bread machine. He's with us all the time. He just fed 5,000. What's the problem with four? But because of their inability to see the power of Jesus and to perceive the solution that's right in front of them, they ask him the question. He asks them what bread they, ha they have, and he sets this one up differently, has them sit down on the ground, no longer in groups like he did in the, the earlier account, but uses a few small fish and this bread. He prays first for the bread and then for the fish. The people eat and are satisfied, and just like the other feeding story where the disciples have lots of leftovers to collect. In that story, 12 baskets. In this story, they have seven uh, containers that are left over, and then he leaves with them. The Pharisees confront Jesus, as they love to do. In verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, what does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. I mean, do you sense the frustration of Jesus? He has fed 5,000 people. That's just a count of the men, probably 15,000. And now he feeds 4,000, which was translated probably to 12,000 people with a little bit of lunch. He transforms it to this massive feast for a crowd of people in a predominantly Gentile region. This would have been a different crowd than ate with him before. This is a, a group of people, many of them who were not Israelite, who now were seeing this miracle working Jesus for the first time. And the Pharisees, roll in hot afterwards and they say, hey Jesus, do another magic trick for us. They think that Jesus should be able to perform on their command so that they can make decisions about who he is and what they should expect from him and what kind of a prophet he is and what sort of messianic expectations he may or may not fulfill and they think they are in charge of him and they say, hey Jesus, do a trick, do a trick. And Jesus sighs because these were God's covenant people. These were the, the pastors. These were the religious leaders. And Jesus has been ministering already throughout the land. He's gone up and down Palestine. He has shown his power over disease, over death, over the demonic, and the Pharisees are far blinder than this man who is the recipient of the miracle. They don't get it. They don't see it. God of very God is standing in their presence and there are 4,000 people with full bellies of supernatural fish that just ate lunch and now the Pharisee squad shows up to say, hey Jesus, prove to us what you can do. And Jesus can do nothing but sigh and say that this generation just doesn't get it. Why? Why? Sometimes we're, we're prone to think if I could see God do a miracle, if he could split the lake, 
If he could do the pillar of fire thing like in Exodus, then I would believe. You ever heard a person talk like that? Here's the cold, hard reality, friends. The Pharisees saw it all, and they didn't believe. Why? Because sin is blindness. Friends, you were born into a fallen world because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and their choice in the garden to rebel against God. Every single one of their offspring, that's you and I, are born sinners by nature. And then because we're sinners by nature, we live as sinners by choice. And sin affects us. It's why we do bad stuff. It's why we lie. It's why we have a tendency to cheat and steal and want what's not ours and not worship God and not tell the truth and not prefer others and to be selfish and a thousand other manifestations of why you are undeniably a sinner by nature and by choice. But sin does more than just make you do bad things or give you a warped tendency. Sin makes you stupid. It makes you unable to see what's right in front of your face. Like the Pharisees and the crowds who wanted to get some free food from Jesus. In John chapter 6, the account of the 5,000 in John's gospel, a massive crowd is fed. Jesus then teaches them things that they don't understand because of their sinful hardness of heart, because it's not a message they wanted to hear. And thousands of them, the same thousands who ate the supernatural bread, walk away from him and don't follow him any longer. This is the blinding nature of sin. And every one of us, a sinner by nature and by choice, is born spiritually blind. When you were born, the doctor got you and your dad snipped the gross thing and they put this vitamin stuff in your eyes so that you would see with your yucky, greasy baby eyes. Cute though, cute, super cute. And it's the first thing they check. They check the baby's breathing. They check the baby's eyes. They're checking to make sure the baby's good. And then somebody needs to clean that baby off. Ew. Trust me, I know this. And you could definitely, when you were born, see. But even at that one hour old mark, you were blind internally. You were unable to see. Fast forward the tape, you're five years old and you're in Awana and you got a bunch of verses memorized and you get a badge or whatever. And you know stuff about God. But for many of you, you were not yet a Christian because sin had still blinded you. Though you had learned facts about Jesus, Jesus wasn't everything to you. Jesus wasn't your Lord. Jesus wasn't your treasure. Jesus didn't captivate your heart. For some of you, that's still where you're at. 
You're still full of all kinds of Bible facts and all kinds of arguments against evolution and all kinds of arguments against uh, Mormonism or a random atheist on the street. You could find evidence for why Christianity is true. You could make a good argument in the classroom, but you have no perception of why Jesus is glorious, beautiful, attractive, and you don't have a desire to follow him and obey him. You just know stuff about him. You're like the Pharisees who roll up and say, hey, do something for me, Jesus. Make it happen. Prove stuff to me. Show it to me. Your heart is hard because sin is blinding. It's blinding. Ephesians 4.17 says that Unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind, that they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, here given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Friends, You have a natural and native depravity that makes you willfully blind. You can learn stuff, but that doesn't mean it affects your heart. You may know things about the Bible, but do you love the Word of God in Christ? 2 Corinthians 4, 4 likewise says, the God of this world, is now this is blaming not only the sin that's inside of you for blinding you, but the devil that's over this world system. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you want to know God? The only way to know God is by way of the glory of Christ. Do you want to know the glory of Christ? Then you need the light of the gospel. The problem is, is that you have a blinded mind and you are living in darkness. You are just as unseeing as the blind man of Bethsaida and you need someone to lead you by the hand to Jesus because you've got to have your eyes opened. John 3, 19, Jesus said, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. You see, because you're a sinner by nature and choice and because the devil has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, the problem is not an intellectual one. The problem isn't that you don't have enough data to decide if you should be a Christian. The problem isn't that you haven't seen enough proof of the deity of Christ. The problem isn't these 10,000 excuses that you may or may not have. The problem is that you love darkness. You want to stay blind. You do not want to obey Jesus. You do not want to follow him like the Pharisees. Sin has hardened you and blinded you. And if you are still an unbeliever, then you live in darkness. And the problem that you have is not mainly intellectual. It is a moral problem. It is that you want to do bad things. You guys like viral videos that are stupid? Of course you do. Humans love them. 
We click them, and we send them, and we gift them. GIF? The Creator says you're supposed to use the word GIF. I reject that. It's GIF. My favorite, see me after. My favorite GIF is this cute, chubby, African-American kid. I send it around a lot. And he just likes to do hood rat stuff with his friend. I don't know if you've seen it, but he was eight years old and he stole his grandmother's SUV. He went on a multi-mile joyride with his friend, ramming into other cars in the Home Depot parking lot, took it out on the open road, uh, wrecked into a bunch of people, kind of you know, had a good time, and then uh, eventually the police were able to stop this kid. They pull him out of the car. Uh, they're like, hey, that was really naughty. And his grandmother's in the video. It's, it's a great video. She's, she uses the phrase, whoop his behind. And <laughs> anyway, the kid is interviewed by the news, and, and he says this funny line. They're like, why did you do this? You know, people could have got hurt. And he says, I just wanted to do hood rat stuff with my friends. And I get that because... I remember when I wanted to just do hood rat stuff with my friends. And I'll tell you something. When you were born into this sinful world, you were a sinner, and you know what you wanted to do? Just hood rat stuff with your friends. If you watch the longer interview, it goes on. And they said, but someone could have got hurt to this young man. And he says, but I like doing bad stuff. It's fun. I appreciate this tiny auto theft's honesty. He's right. We like to do bad stuff. We do. We're sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And this little kid is just like all of us. We love the darkness rather than light because our deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. That's why Jesus warned the religious leaders and said, you're the blind leading the blind. The Pharisees had perfectly functional eyes, but they had no spiritual perception to see who Jesus truly was and not only to know it, but to love him and adore him and to follow him because that's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you see Christ as matchless, worth more than anything, that he's beautiful to you, that he's attractive to you, that he is worth the very cost of your life. Sin is blinding. Jesus says to the disciples, let me give you the second heading. The second heading is salvation is seeing. Number one is sin is blinding. Second, salvation is seeing. Verse 17 of chapter 8. The disciples are still bonking their heads together like the stooges asking questions about bread. And in verse 17, after Jesus tried to warn them about the yeast of the Pharisees, he's being metaphorical. They're still going like, well, should we get wheat bread or rye or don't we have cinnamon rolls? What kind of bread should we have? That's the Austin version. 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? 
And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Are you guys starting to see that the context of this blind man's story has far more to do with seeing things spiritually than just the opening of this man's physical eyes. Look again at verse 17. Do you still not see, he asks them, or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Verse 18, do you have eyes that fail to see? In verse 21, he says, do you still not understand? I mean, there's no need to go crazy on the numbers here, but 12 leftover baskets with the Jewish crowd, probably related to the 12 tribes of Israel, seven leftover baskets of food for this mostly Gentile crowd, reminding them that in this parallel miracle that Jesus came to be the bread of life, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And so they have seven baskets left over, kind of the, the perfect number in the Bible. Jesus has completed this series of feeding miracles, and the disciples are still going, what kind of bread? Who's got bread? Where's the bread? Bread, 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 bread. And Jesus sighing at the Pharisees because they cannot understand or see a sign now sighs at his disciples and says, do you still not understand? And then he walks them to Bethsaida and he walks to this village that he promised in their presence to never do a miracle again. And these guys walk with their friend, their blind friend, and they beg Jesus to heal them. They are saying, Jesus, break your word and do one more miracle here. And he says, no, come with me outside of the town. Jesus puts the spit on the eyes, puts the eyes on it, asks him in the disciples' presence, do you see anything? He says, I see people. They look like trees. There is 13 different Greek words in these verses, all describing the word see or sight or look or eyes. He's saying see, see, perceive, understand, eyes, look. He's trying to show them that only Jesus can open eyes. And that's why we wrote down number two, salvation is seeing. You see, Jesus is performing an actual physical miracle on this blind man's eyes. He is rescuing him from this really difficult life that he knew all too well, and he's restoring him to perfect vision. But he's showing the disciples, and he's showing the Pharisees, and he's showing you, whether you're in hard unbeliever whose spiritual eyes are completely darkened or whether you're a believer who sees things a little bit but maybe not everything clearly or whether you're a mature Christian and you see lots of things and you see and understand the beauty and glory of Jesus, Jesus is teaching all of us that the only way that you can spiritually see anything, perceive the glory and beauty and matchlessness of Jesus and follow him as Lord and be saved from your sin because of his sacrifice is if you have been illuminated, enlightened, moved from spiritual darkness to the light. And salvation is what makes us see. 
God's illuminating work, that's the theological word illumination or enlightenment, begins before you're a Christian. When you start to feel conviction over your sin and guilt about the wrong you've done, and when you first hear the gospel message, maybe from your parents, maybe from a friend, maybe at this camp this week, and you start to sense that this is not only true, but this is for you, God is opening blind eyes, and it's something that only God can do. You could learn facts, but you cannot be illuminated in such a way in your own natural, darkened human understanding to see the beauty and excellency of Jesus, to, in the words of Jesus, see everything clearly. The spiritual knowledge and illumination that's needed to understand the gospel and to internalize the excellencies of divine truth in the Bible is imparted or given by God and by God alone. God is a God of salvation and one of the great acts that he does in saving people is causing us to see the beauty and glory of Jesus. So Jesus becomes the most important important one to us. So Jesus becomes our master. So we become his disciples. So Jesus is the one who we will live for. Only God can illuminate your eyes to see his beauty and excellency. And if you are unsaved, if you are still dead in your sins and transgressions, if you have not been regenerated, if you have not been made alive by God, you have no ability, no capacity to love what is spiritual and not, you will not be able to fully embrace and accept and love the God who rescues from darkness to light. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Look, lots of people feel guilty about their sin because they are guilty and they do bad stuff. That isn't necessarily illumination. Lots of people have Bible facts, but they don't love Jesus. It isn't necessarily illumination. Lots of people have all kinds of feels. That's what you call it, feels. I've got the feels. Your, your, your heart goes pitter-patter. Maybe you know there's a particular worship song that you're like, yeah, it's my jam. That doesn't necessarily mean illumination. It's not just one of these things, but a sense of Jesus' perfection and excellency and desirability to read the Scriptures and to know that they are the Word of God. And not only to know this, but to have a conviction of the truth of the Scriptures and to have this spiritual light that causes us to understand and embrace the things of God as revealed in the Word of God, to see Jesus as saving and wonderful and attractive and as the Lord of our lives. It's all of this that will come together. And there will be the feels at times, and there will be the conviction of sin, and there will be religious or 
or spiritual insight, and there will be an understanding of Scripture. This is the work of God in salvation. He does it through His Word, because of His Son, and by His Holy Spirit. And we, like the man, see things clearly now. And we, like the man, have been changed by the Lord Jesus. The conviction of truth of the things of God and the affection, the love that you have in your heart for God is the work of opening your eyes to the truth of how things really are. And it's a supernatural work that God does in salvation. Third, and we'll say it this way, growing is clarifying. Growing is clarifying. Illumination is not just something that happens to you at salvation. It's something that is a lifelong ministry of the Holy Spirit to Christians. Beginning before conversion, as you begin to grasp truth about Jesus and a growing sense of the exposure of your own sin as you are convicted of your sin by the Holy Spirit, by the law of God, and then at conversion, now your eyes are opened and you see things clearly, but you don't fully apprehend the glory of Jesus yet, do you? I mean, there are times when you believe the lie of sin. There are times when you don't think rightly, when your feelings are way out of whack with what you know to be true, with what your convictions are. And that's why what I see happening in the context of this passage is that there is a clarifying growing, a clarifying maturity that Jesus is giving them a preview of in this story. And I see it in verse 27, right after the story. Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? He asks them a clarifying question. The most important question that you'll ever face is who is Jesus? In other accounts, they answer uh, in various ways. And in this one, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And Jesus presses their understanding, their spiritual perception further, and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, in this moment of incredible clarity, Peter, who pooched it badly so many times before as a disciple of Jesus, and who will mess up again in the future, has this incredible, clarifying moment where he says exactly what's right. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And in another account, when he says that to Jesus, Jesus says to him, that's right, Simon, son of Jonah, you have said it right, but flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. At this moment, Peter's eyes are open wide to who Jesus is. He is the promised King 
and rescuer of Israel and savior of the world, the one the Old Testament said would heal diseases and open blind eyes and and rescue the brokenhearted and set all things right and restore God's throne on earth and set the entire system of injustice and sin and the domination of the devil in order when he established his kingdom. Jesus was the Christ the anointed one, the expected Messiah. And Peter says it right. Bumbling, goofy, unsure of himself, hiding as Jesus is being tried and beaten. Peter, who cussed and denied and turned his back on the Lord, received illumination. You see, growing is clarifying, and I don't want you to misunderstand. If your eyes are open to who Jesus is, if you have love in your heart for Jesus, the true Jesus, that doesn't mean that you've got it all figured out. God will continue to work in you. For most of you, you're at the very beginning of your Christian life. You're at the very front end of this thing. And you have years of learning and growing and perceiving ahead of you. And I want you to be encouraged by the confession of Peter because Peter got the main thing right because God showed it to him. But then Peter will get it way wrong when he denies the Lord and cusses about who he is and says, is crying like a baby, lying, cursing, denying that he even knows Jesus. But then after Jesus restores him, and Jesus ascends to heaven in the book of Acts where the church has her birthday party, it's Peter. Peter whose eyes were opened by God himself to see that Jesus was the promised one. Jesus was the Savior of the world. And Peter, who who messed up and slipped up and denied Jesus, now stands on his feet. Only a few weeks before, blubbering and lying and cursing and denying Jesus is now standing on his feet in front of a huge crowd because something happened that he knew changed him from the inside out and opened his eyes to the reality of who Jesus is for this whole world. God had done something for Peter and he was understanding and he was seeing and he was maturing and things were becoming more clear for him. And he saw that God had brought Jesus to give new life and forgiveness from sin and hope and strength and joy and glory and himself for a creation in rebellion. And Peter stands up in Acts 2.39 and says to a massive crowd of people, as bold as a lion, he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for everyone who is far off. Repent 
and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Peter could preach it with all confidence because he had seen God open the blind eyes of a man on the road to show that God can open the spiritual eyes of a hard-hearted disciple like Peter and grow him in a clarifying vision of the glory and excellency and matchlessness of Jesus. And he, friends, he can do the same thing for you. So if you are still in darkness, cry out to God to open your eyes to perceive and enjoy and love and value Jesus. To know that what he did on the cross, he did for you, is the conviction you need to pray for and ask God for as you trust him in faith. And if you're a brand new baby Christian, if you became a Christian two days ago, you need to trust God that through his word he will continue to show you who Jesus is and what Jesus will do with you. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, understand this, that all of our life and even into eternity, the whole goal of us as creatures is to take in the glory of Jesus. Paul the Apostle said it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror, and then we shall see face to face. You see, this life will come to a screeching halt, and we will stand before Jesus, and we will for all eternity, if you are a Christian, if your sins have been covered at the cross, spend all of eternity growing and gaining a greater apprehension of the excellency of the perfect God who made himself known in Jesus his son. Father, do this work I ask in your son's powerful name. Would you convert lost people? Would you illuminate darkened minds? Would your spirit accomplish what only your spirit can accomplish? Give us a soul-satisfying vision of the glory of Jesus to everyone in this room. Save lost people, open their blind eyes. Sanctify your church, help them to grow in their love and apprehension of the beauty and glory of divine things. God, thank you that you promise us nothing less than yourself and that you will truly satisfy our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.